welcome back to our second session uh, t- today at our third Wave of Psychotherapy online conference. I'm joined here with our second speaker, uh, Professor Michaela Sweels, who's going to give a talk on dialectical behavior therapy. So Professor Sweels is a consultant clinical psychologist and reader in clinical psychology at Bangor University. From 1994 to 1995, she trained in DBT with Marcia Leinen in Seattle and for 20 years ran a clinical program for suicidal young people in in an inpatient service. After completing special supervision in DBT, she became one of the founding members of the UK DBT training team in 1997 and director of the training team in 2002. She has trained more than a thousand professionals in the approach, seating over 400 programs, both in the UK and further afield. She's the co-author of Dialectical Behaviour Therapy, Distinctive Features, which had, which had its second edition published by Routledge in 2016, and Changing Behaviour in DBT, which was published by Guilford in 2015. You can learn more about her work at www.dbt-training.co.uk. So let's give Professor Swales a warm welcome and let's get started. Thanks very much, Niall. It's very good to, to join you here. And I'm just impressed at all of you folk giving up your weekend to learn about third wave therapies. That really gladdens my heart in these difficult times that we're all facing. Um, So before we get going, I just wanted to um, just put up my conflicts of interest. It's important just that you know that before I start so that I receive consultation payments for uh, my work in DBT, royalties from books in DBT. I'm receiving payment for um, this presentation today. And also my husband is involved in running a DBT training company. And it's just important that you know those things before we get started. What I'm going to do in my presentation today is I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, what we know about the evidence for DBT and then really explore what its fundamentals are, its theoretical foundations, what we understand about the, the primary problem for clients who come to this treatment. And then going to give you a flavour of what the treatment looks like and um, also um, talk to you about how some of the things that we would do during treatment and show a little video clip about that. Um, now, I know that the audience today is a mixed one. So there'll be some people here who are mental health professionals who are interested in doing some CPD or kind of, you know, kind of broadening their knowledge of different perspectives. There will be people who are not in the mental health field and are just interested in hearing more about these sorts of developments. And there may be people here who have suffered from some of the problems that these treatments are designed to help. And you're all very welcome. I do want to say at times during the presentation, I will be talking about suicidal and self-harming behaviours. And I know that this can be a challenge, especially um, as many of us have experienced these things at first hand. And um, I do hope that um, the way in which I talk about them won't um, create any challenges or difficulties for you. My apologies if it does. And do feel free just to step away or take a moment um, before coming back uh, to the presentation if if there are any challenges. Um, My sincere apologies if if that does happen. I I hope it won't, but I did just want to mention it before we begin. So um, let's start, first of all, by thinking about uh, DBT as an efficacious and an effective treatment. And so some of you might not be familiar with that sort of distinction, but it's simply to say that um, whenever we're developing a new treatment, we want to um, think about how it works in sort of the best conditions, almost like in laboratory conditions. We've been hearing a lot lately about um, about the, the, the trials testing the virus for uh, COVID-19. And what they are testing is its efficacy. How does it work under the tightest controlled conditions? 
Um, and then we want to know, well, what does it work? How does it work in the real world? How effective is it when it's delivered under ordinary circumstances? Now, um, when you're using a vaccine, there's a from fairly standard procedures that you have to, to use, which doesn't really, doesn't really matter whether you're in a laboratory sort of setting or if you're in the real world. Um, although we have heard things about some of these viruses and um, these vaccines having to be held at very low temperatures, which perhaps presents a challenge for delivery in the real world. If you're thinking about a psychological treatment, um, often it's even harder to get it to translate out into the real world because often in setting up clinical trials for um, psychological treatments, sometimes the clients who um, come for those treatments are perhaps not as severe or as complex as some of the clients who might be seen in routine mental health services, particularly in public mental health services. So it's important to assess whether a treatment is both efficacious, like does it work under the best possible conditions, but is it also effective in routine conditions? Well, the good news about DBT is that it's effective in both circumstances. Um, it was the first evidence-based treatment for personality disorder uh, back in 1991. Um, and in fact, in that way, it sort of really changed the field because up until that point, um, it had often been thought and said, and in fact, it, it, it saddened me a great deal to still hear that in some places people feel that um, individuals who end up with this label of personality disorder are untreatable. And this is absolutely not the case, is that DBT was the first treatment um, to show that it could help people who have that label. Um, but there have been other treatments since which also have been shown to be um, efficacious and effective. So it was the first treatment to show that it um, uh, could actually help um, people with this diagnosis. Um, um, but also, it is now the most researched, um, uh, it's the most researched uh, treatment in the field. Now, something's gone rather odd here with the slide uh, colouring, so you can't really see that. But there are now um, over 30 uh, research trials um, on this treatment uh, uh, published. And it is now, so it is now well, very well established uh, as, a, as a solid treatment. And also these treatment trials have been done in different places around the world and also by different um, teams. Because, of course, sometimes if you're the treatment developer and you're passionate about a treatment, then you may well get better outcomes because of your passion. So it's also important to make sure that treatment can be um, done by other people who have not worked with the treatment developer and who can learn the treatment and do it in, in, in other contexts. Um, it also, as I said, transports effectively to routine practice. So there have now been lots of studies which have looked at the treatment when it's delivered in NHS settings, public health settings, other sorts of settings around, around the world, um, and it shows very similar outcomes. Now, there are variabilities in outcomes in routine practice, and some of those to do with the things that happen when you try to move a treatment into routine practice. That's not really the, the target of today's uh, talk, but there are some things often um, public services often want to sacrifice some of the integrity of psychological interventions in terms of being able to uh, fully um, deliver them because often certainly with something like DVT it's quite an intense intervention as you'll see um, and so some of the variation is due to, to that process but generally speaking it does transport very effectively and show similar outcomes um, in routine practice as it does in these clinical trials. 
it's it's a manualized treatment and this is one of the things that really helps to make sure that it can be used outside of um, the places where it was first developed you can see here on the screen a kind of photo of the treatment manual cognitive behavioral treatment of borderline personality disorder this was published in 1993 and there's a little story about why it's not called dialectical behavior therapy for borderline personality disorder and that was simply because Marsha Linehan's publisher at the time Marsha Linehan was a, a, an unknown academic um, and the publisher said no one's going to know what the word dialectical means um, and they wouldn't let it uh, be on the title of her book so it's perhaps the only treatment manual of a successful treatment which isn't actually named after the treatment um, contained within it. So there's the treatment manual, which outlines um, the comprehensive treatment and all its different elements. And then in addition, we've got the skills training manuals, which are both the, the most recent versions are also there on the screen. Um, and these describe what happens in one element of the, of the treatment, which is the, a skills training group component. And I'll say a bit more about that later. What's important just to note here is that in essence, there are kind of almost two treatments in one here. That for clients with um, personality disorder difficulties, so very severe, uh, complex problems, especially those who have suicidal or self-harm um, issues, you really need the comprehensive treatment, which includes, um, and you would need all both sets of manuals here for that. However, there's also some recent research showing that for clients with less complex and less um, um, not necessarily less severe, but less complex and multiple diagnoses. The skills training um, element, a sort of a, a comprehensive skills training group approach, as evidenced in the skills training manuals, can also be really helpful. So there's kind of two treatments in one here in DBT. It's also been adapted for other populations, in particular for suicidal adolescents. Um, but there are also adaptations for people in um, forensic settings, uh, for children, uh, for clients who have a primary eating disorder or primary substance use disorder. So it has been adapted for other populations, although the evidence base for those is much smaller uh, and still needs development. Um, as a result of its efficacy and its effectiveness, it's been um, it often appears in uh, national guidance and recommendations in the UK here it appears in the uh, NICE recommendations for treatment and management of borderline personality disorder and also the Cochrane collaboration regularly summarizes the outcomes and of, of clinical trials for different populations and um, the most recent one actually in uh, just a few months ago in 2020 again demonstrated that DBT as well as being the most research treatment uh, for this population also has very solid outcomes for, for clients. Um, so given that it's uh, got some evidence that it's useful then it's perhaps worth thinking about well okay well what is, what is its essence what are the, the sort of core elements of it. So I wanted to say a little bit about how the treatment conceptualizes the problem for clients who have um, this diagnosis of, of borderline personality disorder. And what DBT um, really focuses on is the thing that we see here in the center, emotion dysregulation. And it sees this as being the primary problem that clients who come to this treatment have that they experience emotions more intensely than other people. They probably have even more intense emotions than others. They're often more sensitive, and I'll say more about that in just a moment. But also, um, 
because of just the way that their system is designed, that it takes longer for their emotions to come back to baseline. And if you are someone who has that um, those sets of problems of emotional sensitivity, reactivity, and a difficulty in your emotions coming back to baseline, that then um, ricochets out, we might say, into other areas of your life. And I mean, this is true for all of us. If we just think of, you know, perhaps some of the emotions that we've been experiencing very recently, maybe some of you on this call have had to change your plans because of the lockdown that was announced yesterday, um, you know, and, and so your emotions are heightened for understandable reasons. And often then other things follow um, for any of us so that um, if we're emotionally dysregulated, often our interpersonal relationships don't go so well. And for clients with these sorts of issues, often they have a lot of interpersonal chaos um, and often a lot of fears of abandonment. And I have to say, having worked with a lot of people young people over my career, that comes really from their experience of abandonment early on in their life and that often they have been abandoned and and, many, and sometimes because some people find their emotional intensity and the levels of distress they experience hard to, to manage. Of course, it's much harder for the person to manage them, but nonetheless, that's often an issue. So often interpersonal difficulties are a common um, uh, concomitant of emotion dysregulation. Of course, if your relationships are not going well, that of course impacts again on your emotion dysregulation. So you get that cycle going. It's also the case if we go to the other diametrically opposite quadrant, if you're um, struggling with your emotions, then also your thinking tends to be dysregulated also. And so often for clients with extreme levels of emotion dysregulation, they may experience paranoid thinking um, and also they may uh, dissociate and find it, you know, become completely disconnected with what, what's happening. And also as a result, if you're someone who's chaotic, your relationships are in chaos, your, your thinking is disturbed, then it's hard to regulate your sense of self and to see yourself as a person who is kind of continuing, um, steady across time and space. You know, if you today are talking to someone and you feel that they understand you and that they um, are kind of in your corner, but maybe something else happens tomorrow, something that they said or some other thing that comes to light and you feel intensely emotionally distressed and now you really don't trust this person and you wonder how on earth you ever did trust them. If you have that kind of oscillation in your emotions and your relationships, it's hard to kind of feel steady um, in your own sense of self. And so often that's a common problem and, and clients not knowing what it is that they want or how to achieve what they want. And then also we see there that um, a, a common uh, consequence of extreme emotion dysregulation are suicidal behaviours, non-suicidal self-injury and impulsive behaviours. And these behaviours are sometimes we could think of them as just a natural outworking of extreme dysregulation. You may have and yourself at a time, if you've been extremely dysregulated, that you may have become more impulsive. Um, but also these behaviours um, are extremely good at re-regulating emotion. And in fact, if it wasn't for the negative longer term consequences of them, you could even be in favour of them because they are so effective, at rapidly changing um, inner emotional states and regulating emotions. And I think it's really important just to really try and um, or, or land on that point for a moment and really kind of um, absorb that. Because I think often clients who have these sorts of difficulties, often in mental health services or even by people in the public domain, they often tend to um, 
be thought of as manipulative or um, um, somehow that they're doing these behaviours for attention. I mean, I have to say, as if there's something wrong with having attention, there's nothing wrong with wanting attention or needing attention. Most of us do want and need attention. It's perfectly normal human function. Um, however, it's often talked about as though sometimes somehow this behaviour is attention-seeking and manipulative. Um, and one of the things that's really important to appreciate is that these behaviours um, that's that's often not the function of them. Their function is often not um, about what happens in the environment. For many people, these behaviours are very private, and they and for many people, they would like they would prefer them to remain private. It's just unfortunately that um, they often then realise that they've done something and that they need help. Um, but the the primary reason for these behaviours is that they regulate emotion. And if you talk to clients who engage in these behaviours, that's what they tell us. And so if you're working with someone with these sorts of difficulties, it's really important to bear that in mind, not get distracted by the fact that there may be things that happen in the environment. And those things may be relevant as well. They may become secondary uh, reinforcers, as we would say. But it's really important to stay focused on this central function of affect regulation. And you'll see how it is that the treatment addresses that as we go through our talk today. So. DBT is essentially a treatment for this emotional dysregulation. And it's worth just kind of pausing for a moment to maybe think, you know, some of you might be thinking, well, where does this come from? How is it that people might have these sorts of problems? Well, when DBT was first developed, there was very little known about this, in fact. And um, Marsha Linehan, the treatment developer, had a hypothesis um, about what might be going on based on some limited evidence at the time. And interestingly, her her theory at that time, biosocial theory, has come to be supported increasingly by evidence in the last 20 or so years. And so what she talked about was that, first of all, um, for people who end up with these problems, they often are biologically vulnerable. And their vulnerability is um, this sort of reactivity and sensitivity to emotional stimuli. And that uh, um, this is perhaps, and we now know, is underpinned by some genetic factors. Also, early um, experience, even in utero, when, when, uh, when the, the, the child is in the womb, that things that can happen during that period can make a child more sensitive and have a biologically more sensitive system. And also, early trauma or early difficulties in a child's life affect the developing neurobiological system to make the child more sensitive and more reactive to emotional stimuli. So there's a strong biological basis to these problems. However, in addition to that, we know also that um, people who end up with these problems have been raised in environments that have been less than ideal. That often these environments have um, not been able to um, support or validate um, the child's um, emotional sensitivity in the way that would be maximally helpful. Um, so often, you know, this is, isn't helped by cultural factors. Um, maybe people from lots of different cultural backgrounds on the call. I sincerely hope they are. And I'm always interested to hear how these things are different in different cultures and different contexts. But um, one of the things that can happen is if you have a very sensitive child, it requires even more attuned and sensitive and invested parenting. And that's not always possible for parents to be able to offer. 
often parents themselves might be struggling with these very same issues. There may also be a lack of support in the context. And so what happens is that the child, the developing child, doesn't get the necessary supports that they need to be able to manage this very sensitive emotional system that they have. And so often what happens then is that they um, engage in behaviours which children are perfectly natural outworking of being very emotionally distressed. They may have temper tantrums, they may be somewhat aggressive or they may be very withdrawn. Um, and this, of course, then often leads to further what we would call invalidation from the environment or criticism from the environment about the child's temperament or development. And these things over time transact to lead to an increased sense of emotional vulnerability and um, and, and difficulty in managing emotions. We also know that a high proportion of people who end up with um, uh, this, this label of borderline personality disorder also have, have a history of trauma, of emotional abuse and neglect, physical abuse, sexual abuse. And so those environments are the most extreme forms of invalidation, which would of course naturally lead to extreme in, intense emotions. And also, um, this, this process of being invalidated is that, you know, often it goes for many years before that sort of abuse is uncovered and the, and the child is not under their emotional response is not being understood. and They're kind of being pathologized when in fact they're in an intolerable situation and just doing the best that they can. And so there are lots of things that we know about early development and um, in childhood and then further into adolescence, which will lead to the development of these problems and really have solidified this idea that Linehan developed about emotion dysregulation being at the heart of these, of these problems. So how does DBT go about trying to address them? Well, DBT is an integrative treatment. So it, it drew from a number of different traditions um, in order to sort of um, become a thing, if you like. And it started um, actually as a behavioural treatment that Marsha Linehan, who developed the treatment, she was actually a behaviourist. And that was what she really set out to develop. She set out to develop a behavioural treatment to help people who were suicidal and self-harming. And that was where she began. And so she really focused, and there's still a strong element um, in this treatment of focusing on behaviour and behaviour change. She drew on the three key sort of pillars of behavioural treatment from Skinner in terms of operant conditioning, Pavlov in terms of classical conditioning, and Albert Bandura in terms of social learning theory. And this is a radical behaviourist treatment, much like other third wave treatments, like ACT is another radical behaviourist treatment, um, where what you're really thinking about is that anything that a person does not just their overt behavior, you know, I'm standing up now and I'm gesticulating, that most people would recognize that as a behavior, I'm speaking to you, I'm presenting to you. Um, but also, um, as I'm doing that, I'm having emotions and thoughts and I'm being aware of sensations, but those emotions and thoughts that I'm having are also behaviors. Um, and one of the things that's helpful to think about these things as behaviours is it means that the theories developed by Skinner, Pavlov, Bandura can be used to both think about changing our emotions and thoughts as well as our overt behaviours. So DBT really has a, it's called this strong focus on changing behaviour, and I think that will become evident as we go through. But what I wanted to say is that what Marsha Linehan discovered when she set off to apply behaviourism 
to clients with um, personality disorder who had suicidal and self-harming behavior, she found that actually it was just completely impossible, that the treatment just kind of blew up. Yeah. And one of the things that she was aware of as she was watching the therapy that she was doing, she always recorded her therapy and had people watching her as she was doing it, was that what seemed to be the trouble was that the relentless focus on change, especially when the person in front of you coming for treatment has got multiple problems, lots and lots of problems. If you're constantly pushing for change on all of these things, it actually leaves the person sort of feeling hopeless, overwhelmed, and also as if nothing about them is right, that sort of it's them that's the problem. And so this relentless focus on change was she realized a problem. And so what she went searching for was something to counterbalance that, something to really go opposite to that. And just because of her own personal experience, um, she, she's written her own memoir about how she applied these, these principles in her own life. Um, she went to um, Zen Mindfulness. Zen Mindfulness is the complete opposite in many senses to behaviorism. Rather than focusing on change, it talks about comprehensive acceptance of things as they are. It's a not change um, approach. Now, interestingly, um, in that uh, um, sort of contrast, complete contrast to behaviorism, there are some similarities. Um, for example, if you were to move into a Zen monastery, for example, um, you wouldn't get told a list of rules and regulations beforehand. You would just um, you would learn how to do things by your encounter with the contingencies, by your encounter with the environment and how people respond to you. Um, and so in that sense, it's kind of uh, some similarities with behaviorism, but kind of conceptually, it's very different. It's kind of the antithesis, one might say. And so there's a real um, focus in DBT on comprehensive, radical acceptance of the client as he or she is in the current moment, of the current situation in which they are in, the state of the therapy relationship, and the present moment. And a DBT therapist needs to be able to fully embrace that side of things. Now, I thought as um, we've been, I've been talking at you for half an hour, now might be a moment to have a bit of a mindful practice. And so I'm actually just going to do that with you just for a few moments, just as we might do in a skills class or um, when working with a client. And so what I'd like you to do is I'm going to ring the bell just to signal the beginning of the practice. And um, as I ring the bell, I'll ring it three times. Just, um, just settle yourself in. Just breathe. Just notice where you are. If you're sitting, just notice your contact with the chair. Now, in DBT, one of the things um, we're wanting to work on is to be mindful in everyday life. And so uh, what I really would like you to do is to um, keep your eyes open, if you can, while we do this practice. Um, but what I'd like you to do is to just rest your eyes on something that's not too sort of challenging or um, stimulating to you. And as, we, uh, as you do that, as the bells come to the end, what I'd like you to do is to just focus your attention on sound. It might be sound within your own body. It might be sound in the room you're in. It might be out with the room that you're in. And to just notice, simply notice any sounds that you observe. Now, 
the chances are, as you do that, that your mind might wander off. It's in the nature of minds to do this. They're kind of like a like, little bit like puppies that they gamble off after the latest leaf or as my dog does. I'm just hoping he doesn't see a squirrel in the garden because then there'll be uh, lots of dog barking for which I apologize in advance. But our minds can be a little bit like my dog seeing the squirrel. They just kind of go after it. And so if you notice that, just simply notice that and try and bring your attention back to sound. If it goes again, just notice and bring your attention back to sound. Okay. So we're not gonna, I'm not going to go for too long, only be a couple of minutes. Um, so just simply be here and just notice whatever sounds you hear. Now, of course, if we were in a room together, I would ask you what you noticed. And maybe some of you might want to say in the Q&A later. But what I'm going to say is a little bit about what typically can happen, although, of course, we're all unique and different things are likely to have happened to different people, um, depending on your current state, your experience with uh, mindfulness and, and many other factors. Some of you will have noticed that your mind went running off. Yeah. For some of you, it may well have gone at the start of the practice and you were actually only even aware that it had gone when I rang the bell to finish. Um, and you just sometimes that happens, you know, uh, something happens and off our mind goes and it's hard to come back. And that's one of the things we're working on in the treatment is to try and help our clients to learn to be able to call their mind when their mind has gone to call it, bring it back um, and know, oh, it's gone and to call it. Um, and bring it back. Some of you might have noticed um, that whenever you heard things, but like my dog barking there, you might have dog barking, uh, bird calling, uh, heater buzzing. 
that you might have noticed yourself labeling sounds um, as you heard them. Now, this is a very interesting thing. Of course, it's a skill that we're taught since we're really tiny to get good at. And we'll have got praise for it when we were really tiny for labeling sounds and labeling things. But of course, this isn't actually um, especially mindful. It's very useful as a human to get you through the world, but it's not especially mindful. And sometimes it can lead you off into different um, uh, sort of thought trains. So one of the things when we're listening to sounds is that uh, we're wanting to really just see if we can observe the sound, you know. So if I were, other than saying dog barking, I would maybe just go, well, I heard a rah, rah sound would be a more description of what I heard. So one of the things if you are new to this and you notice yourself labeling lots of sounds is to see if you can just simply try and notice the sound itself without labeling. This is incredibly hard. Um, some of you might have noticed that your mind went wandering off and then you might have had a judgment. Oh, I shouldn't be doing that. I'm meant to be concentrating. And you might have had some emotions kind of come up about that. Um, and so, again, that's very interesting, you know, that our minds sort of instantly kind of compare us and judge ourselves if we somehow are not doing what we should do. And of course, that often leads to emotion dysregulation. And so, again, this is one of the things in the treatment we're really wanting to encourage our clients to notice is simply just to notice my mind has wandered and to let go of any judgments about that and to let go of any self-criticism about that, but simply to notice my mind wandered. How about that? Interesting. Never mind. Bring it back. Because there are so many things in, uh, that happen in, in life which can lead us to be judgmental about our performance and self-critical. And often the clients who come to this treatment have had that a lot in their, their upbringing. That we're really trying to cultivate the capacity to non-judgmentally become aware of our mind and our emotions and our actions. And so DBT, as well as having a strong push for change, as a big push for change. It also has a strong focus on simply noticing and being present, which came from Marshall Linehan's study of then mindfulness. And indeed, she herself was a, a sort of, um, uh, she was strong in both. She was a professor at a university with a specialism in behaviorism, but she was also a Zen Roshi. So she was a, a Zen teacher. So she also um, progressed um, to, as, a, as a Zen teacher also. And those two strong elements are really there in the treatment. Now, these are two very contradictory approaches. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, Linehan appreciated is that she needed something to try and as it were, house them in a kind of coherent way so that they weren't going to be tearing each other apart. And that's where um, dialectics comes in. Um, and so I'm going to say a little bit about how dialectics is relevant to the treatment. Um, it is fair to say that often my adolescent clients used to refer to it as diabolical behaviour therapy rather than dialectical behaviour therapy, and there's definitely some truth in that. It's not the easiest treatment in the world to do. It does demand a lot of the therapist, and it's hard work for the client, definitely. Um, however, we'll focus a bit more on its dialectical nature rather than the, uh, the, the challenging aspects of it. But what really dialectics is about is it recognises the validity really in contrasting perspectives on reality. Um, now we see in this little graphic here, we've got two opposing teams here who are kind of in a tug of war. Now they're all looking very um, cheerful 
about it. But often the aim in a tug of war is really to kind of pull until one side ends up on their backside, usually on a muddy ground. Yeah? And that's really a non-dialectical approach. Yeah? A tug of war is non-dialectical. Um, and what, so what Marsha didn't want to happen was to have behaviorism and Zen mindfulness pull each other apart in this treatment. What she wanted to do was to find a way of bringing them together. You might say in a way of finding the middle path between these two things. And the way you would do that is in the way you work dialectically is, first of all, to respect and value the different uh, perspectives that come from contrasting views. So that in the treatment itself, of course, it values what behaviorism brings and it values what Zen mindfulness brings and recognizes that these two things are seeing the world from slightly different perspectives and both have value. And that idea really permeates the treatment. So, for example, um, if you and your client have a disagreement about how to do something, you know, so perhaps my client really feels absolutely desperate and they feel that their only solution is that they want to go into the hospital to escape the situation in which they are in. And they are really advocating for that. I, on the other hand, might remember the other times they've been in the hospital and remember how that's been really unhelpful and caused them even more pain and difficulty and led to all sorts of other consequences which were really undesired. Now, what could happen here is that my client and I, we could fall out over this. We could end up having it with me just trying to convince my client that going into the hospital isn't the solution. They have to work harder to manage themselves. And my client going harder to try and persuade me that really I don't get how desperate they are and um, that this going to the hospital is the only solution. Whereas a DBT therapist recognizes that there is a validity in what the client is saying is that they are desperate, they have nothing else to give, they're overwhelmed and exhausted. But that is the truth. And the truth I hold is that going into the hospital whilst may provide temporary relief also leads to other problems which have caused further distress, exhaustion and difficulty. So both of us have a perspective on the truth. Both of us have got the truth on our side, if you like. Dialectically, what we have to do is we have to find solutions that respect the validity in both of our perspectives. So I think it's really important here that it's not a compromise, yeah? So it's not like a Brexit deal where you're trying to kind of, you know, get one over and kind of get a deal, you know, by knocking off different people's perspectives, yeah? What you're after is a synthesis, which is where you actually say that actually the, it, the perspective of the other side, uh, different to your own, has truth and validity. And that doesn't mean that you don't have truth and validity too. So we're looking for solutions that respect both sides. So my, my client, for example, we might look for solutions that... Um, uh, for example, it could be that going into the hospital could be a solution. However, we'd have to think about how to mitigate the problems from going into the hospital. So perhaps a client might go in for a shorter period or it might be for a specific intervention. Or it could be that we find a solution where my client gets a break from what they, where they're living and the circumstances, but not in the hospital, but somewhere else. And we'd have to work out that solution. 
So working out syntheses that respect these different sides is not easy because you have to really embrace what's valid in both perspectives. But often in, in, in that endeavor, and, in the, and, and, and you have to do it um, with a kind of an honesty, like you, that you really do believe that. It's not just something you're saying, that you really do believe that your client has got a huge element of the truth. And you might have some perspective that is partly true too, that, um, that you can find genuine syntheses or the middle path, as we might say. The other thing about a dialectical worldview is that it really embraces this idea of everything being very connected. Now, this used to be a bit of a hard sell, but I have to say, living in a global pandemic, everybody's totally up with the idea that we're all connected. And something that someone could do further away can impact how we kind of work. And so that um, in a dialectical perspective, we're always being awake to the fact that what I do as the therapist will be impacting the client, what the client is doing is impacting me, what's happening in my team, what happens in our culture. These things are all connected and they reciprocally influence one another. And we're open to that. And so that means that whenever we're trying to analyze a problem, we're always willing to search for what's left out in our understanding. What have we missed in our understanding of this problem? What has been forgotten in how we are conceptualizing what's happened? So that's an essential component of dialectics. Um, and also that um, as well as being connected, that the world is full of opposites. You know, that um, you know, if you argue strongly for, I mean, we see this again in the whole Brexit thing, um, or indeed in the global pandemic, the kind of the, the tension between public health versus the economy, there are these tensions that kind of come up. Um, and one of the things in a DBT um, perspective, in a DBT worldview, you're wanting these multiple perspectives because you're wanting to benefit from the value and the truth and the different perspectives. Um, and that it is through these kind of opposites and the fact that everything is connected that we, um, that change is continual and transactional, you know? Um, and and that as a result of that, things change. You know, in terms of this, um, the opposites and uh, the sort of dialectical worldview. My identity as a presenter um, right here, right now, is based on the fundamental assumption that there are people online on this call actually listening to what I say. I can just see the chat thing bumping a little bit in the corner, so I'm reassured that there are people out there listening to me. Um, but, of course, if there weren't, I'd just be some kind of slightly odd middle-aged woman talking to herself in her study on a Sunday afternoon. You know, my identity as a presenter is entirely based on the fact that there's people there listening. Yeah. And so this idea of kind of connectivity, reciprocity, and these tensions that um, evolve in, in the environment, these, is what, these are what lead to a continuous transactional state of change. And as a DBT therapist, you're wanting to be awake to that, you're wanting to make sure that you don't get stuck on one end of a dialectic and being very kind of rigid about how you're conceptualizing a problem. You're wanting to be able to move to different positions and different perspectives in order to find a way to move forward smoothly um, for your client. Okay. So um, DBT is a team-based treatment. I'll just say a few things about this and then we'll take a little five-minute break. So DBT um, requires a team of therapists in order to deliver it. And so this is one of the things that makes it different to some other therapies. 
is that it's not something that a single therapist can do in a room with another client. It really is about a community of therapists working with a community of clients. And so that's really important to kind of know um, if you're going to A, set up a DBT team, but also if you're someone thinking about getting DBT, you want to be sure that you're getting your treatment from a team. One of the reasons for this is that as a dialectical treatment, um, you need multiple perspectives and multiple different views. And you can only get that from a team. And so the, the DBT team, its task is to um, consult to the DBT therapist and provide him or her with different perspectives, and different views about how to be the best therapist they can possibly be for their client. The other reason you have a team is that often clients that DBT treats have a lot of um, severe problems and high risk. And this can lead to therapists potentially burning out if they don't get the right amount of support. And so that's another reason for having a team to make sure that you are kind of um, getting the sort of nourishment that you need from your team in order to be able to stay resilient and to be able to deliver the treatment. So I'm just going to say briefly how the treatment program is structured. And this is when you're delivering for clients who have complex problems which can often be termed personality disorder. Um, so it has four elements to treatment. Um, it has, as you might expect, it has an individual therapy component, but it also has a skills class component. So the client will have a, an hour a week individual therapy, but they'll also come to a two and a half hour weekly skills class. And it's in that skills class that they would receive the curriculum in those skills training manuals. And the kind of the idea is that the skills trainers are kind of pumping new skills into the client in the skills class. And then the individual therapist, when they're analyzing the problems the clients had this week, kind of they go fishing for the things that the skills trainer has sort of planted in the client to see if they can draw those out and then really help the client think about how to apply those skills to their particular problems. And you need both of these elements is that Learning new skills is very challenging. If any of you try to learn a language or to do anything, it takes a lot of time and practice to learn a new skill. Um, and learning to manage your emotions and your thoughts and your relationships is no easier than learning uh, a foreign language. It's just as difficult. And so you therefore need your individual therapist whose task it is, is to help you really apply what you're learning in the skills class to the unique situation that you have. In addition to that, DBT also has an element called telephone coaching, um, or it can be also via email and via text. But this is where the individual therapist outside of standard therapy hours would be willing to take a call um, from the client for coaching about how to actually apply the, the skills in a problem that's happening right now. And so DBT therapists are willing to take calls outside of hours to be able to coach clients. Now, these are not crisis calls. They are skills coaching calls. Um, and they're remarkably effective. And also the data show that DBT therapists don't get any more calls from their clients than people who do other sorts of therapy. Um, but the nature of the calls is different. They are more about skills coaching and less about crises. So these are the three elements that the client is in receipt of. And then, as we mentioned, the therapists themselves, they are in receipt of being in a consultation team. And the task of the team is to support them in delivering these other elements to the client. And this comprehensive DBT that you see here, represented by these four elements, 
the one for which there is the most evidence for clients with complex problems. So we've got a treatment program. What do we do as a DBT therapist? Well, we target problems in a hierarchical manner. So we're going to list the problems that the client has in a sort of predetermined order and that's decided by the treatment. And this helps you as a, a DBT therapist to not be overwhelmed by the number of different problems and to help you decide which problem to tackle at any one time. And so I'm just going to show you a couple of examples here of some uh, some fictitious patients, but they are very similar to clients that I've treated over, over the years. Um, so on the left, we've got Jane. And what you see for both of them here is that we start with life-threatening behaviours. In DBT, these are defined in a specific way. Um, so these are suicidal behaviours, non-suicidal self-injury, or serious aggressive acts. Um, so um, you can see here with Jane and Robert, slightly different things that they are battling themselves, but that those are the behaviours that you see right at the top. And the, the rationale for this is that if your client dies or kills someone else, they are going to be out of treatment and you're not going to be able to help them. And so um, you're going to have that as your top priority. Your top priority is to keep your client alive in order to be able to help them. The next thing is that for clients with this level of complexity, the next biggest risk after death is that they might drop out of treatment and then not get a treatment that otherwise might help them. So we're really going to focus on behaviours that get in the way of them getting the therapy to its maximum benefit. Now, some of this might be things like not attending regularly, a very common problem, as we see there. It's both relevant to Jane and Robert. Um, it might be that they don't practice the solutions that you come up with in therapy. Um, as, as we say there with Jane, or maybe your client just really um, says and does things in therapy that are really difficult, like telling you to F off and isn't really listening to what you're saying. But after those life-threatening and therapy-interfering behaviours, the next thing you're going to tackle is what are called in DBT quality of life interfering behaviours. Now, this isn't the best term, I have to say, and I know Marsha herself realised it wasn't the best term because quality of life might imply, you know, for us right now, it would be being able to see our families at Christmas, perhaps, or being able to, you know, change our job or even have a job um, at the moment. But what we're, what we're focusing on here in DBT are behaviours associated with other psychiatric diagnoses. So we see that here for Robert and Jane with vomiting, binging, social anxiety, substance abuse, um, but also um, other seriously destabilizing behaviors. So we see there with Robert property damage and fighting with peers. These are things that are really going to destabilize his life. And so we really want to focus on those. And so when your client comes into treatment, you're going to work with them on getting a list of these behaviours that you're going to focus on in a hierarchical way. You'll start on the things at the top to begin with, and as those um, start to improve, you'll move your way down to address the other things. Um, now, it's worth saying that at this point, some of you might be thinking, but why on earth would anyone want to go into a treatment where you're going to do that? Um, many of you might have been with clients who've just refused to do that kind of thing. And I think this is really important that um, as it, the DBT really centers on this central um, factor that it's not a suicide prevention or a self-harm treatment. It's a life worth living development program. 
And so when you start with someone in DBT, you really have to try and understand what would a life worth living be for them. That DBT strongly holds this position that people who are trying to kill themselves or who are harming themselves, they are doing so because their life is not worth living. And that our task is to help them build a life worth living. And so before getting into all of these things that you have to change, you have to really connect with what is it that your client would find. You know, what if they weren't doing all of these things, if they didn't have all of these problems, what would a life worth living be like for them? Because that's what we're having to work towards. So that it's not just focused on eliminating problems. It's actually focused on eliminating these problems in order to develop a life worth living for our clients. And that's really kind of a central feature and something a DBT therapist will be constantly going back to, you know, that you know, the reason we're working on stopping the self-harm is because you told me that you wanted to get married and have a family and all of your relationships have ended over the extent of your self-harm, which is why we're really wanting this to stop. You know, so that there's a constant linking of solving these problems to a life that the client wants. Now, of course, um, often a client might lose hope or even not have any hope at all that they could get that life. And that's your task as a therapist is to hold that hope and the belief that this can be done and that you will help them to do it. And so alongside this you know, work on decreasing problems, we're also working on building up new skills, new strategies in order to be able to build a life worth living. So once we've got our goals and we know what the client wants and we've got our target hierarchy, well, what are we going to do? Well, we treat the highest priority behavior first. So what we're going to be doing each week, we, our clients track their behaviors on a diary card and we select the, the behavior from the diary card that comes highest in that list of targets. And we're going to analyze the behavior and we're looking for what we call controlling variables. So these are emotions, thoughts, and actions um, that determine whether or not the behavior is going to occur again. So some of these might be um, things that happen before the behavior. So for example, it might be an emotion that when the client experiences shame, um, they almost always go on to harm themselves. It might be something that follows the behavior. You know, perhaps it's that after the behavior, they feel intense relief or that all the stress has just gone. I was talking to a, a former client of mine uh, earlier this week who was saying, you know, it was just, she just had a sense of tension across her, her chest. And the only thing that would take that away was harming herself. It was the only thing to begin with that gave her any relief from that. And so the relief coming from um, the behavior was one of the controlling variables. It kind of is keeping the behavior going. So we're constantly looking as we analyze these behaviors each week for skills deficits. So things that the client doesn't know how to do. So for example, how to manage shame or how to get rid of this tension across the chest or whatever, the, or perhaps it's um, persistent thoughts that they're no good or they're hopeless or they're disgusting or whatever it is. So we're looking for skills deficits and we're going to teach skills in order to kind of help the client overcome those. But we're also going to be on the lookout for emotions and thoughts that might get in the way of trying new skills or developing new skills or problematic things that happen in the environment 
doesn't mean that the, the client won't practice their new skills. So, for example, if the client um, uh, is practicing interpersonal skills and the people in their environment just punish them for that, then, of course, they'll stop using them. So we're going to have to problem solve how to actually get the new skills working effectively in the client's environment. And we're going to systematically solve these problems by both teaching new skills, but also using other strategies from the cognitive behavioral therapy canon, if you like, um, cognitive restructuring, exposure and contingency management. And so DBT draws on all of those cognitive behavioral treatments. In that sense, the original title of the book, Cognitive Behavioral Treatment, wasn't so far off because that is an element of strong element of the treatment. Um, you are really a DBT therapist needs to be a really good, solid cognitive behavioral therapist, as well as um, effective at mindfulness and being able to be dialectical. And so we're going to systematically solve these problems. Um, so um, here's just a couple of examples from my hypothetical client. So this is a situation where the client avoids going to a party. She has social anxiety. Um, she gets a text from some of her friends because she doesn't like to acknowledge her social anxiety. She hadn't said that she wasn't going to go. And she gets a text saying, where are you? She feels really anxious about that. And then she starts thinking, I should go. I really should go. Um, I'm a bad person that I don't go. And so then she experiences shame. And the shame is what's really intolerable to her. And so she takes an overdose of um, tablets and her shame and anxiety go down. So here, the controlling variables would probably definitely be some anxiety, also the shame and the thoughts I should go. And so we'd be focusing our treatment plan around those particular elements. Um, here's an example from Robert. Um, he comes to therapy hungover. He asks his therapist, his therapist asks him for his diary card. He hasn't done it. He feels a bit of shame about that. He thinks I should have done it. But then he thinks she shouldn't make me do it. She knows how hard things are for me. And he feels really angry. And that's when he tells her to F off. She backs off seeing how difficult things are. And she validates him about obviously things are really difficult. And then his anger and his shame go down. So here, some of the controlling variables are likely to be the shame and the thoughts that I should have done it and the anger. Um, but also the fact that the therapist backs off is also likely to be a controlling variable. And to get this behavior to shift, we're going to have to both help Robert manage his emotional side of things and also help the therapist to be able to stay in the game and be able to handle this more effectively. Okay, so um, I wanted to show you a little video clip about um, how we might go about rehearsing um, new skills for a client in this situation. So in this particular clip I'm going to show you, this is from a um, from a, an unscripted role play that I did with a, a colleague of mine. Um, and what's happened for this client, is a, this is actually a full session, so I'm only going to show you five minutes because that's all we have time for. Um, but what's happened, and the client is, has been telling the therapist that um, she harmed herself uh, over the weekend. And what had prompted this was that she'd been feeling quite lonely um, and she drunk some alcohol, which is a problem for her. But she then decided to go and visit her ex-partner. And she'd gone to visit him and she'd knocked on the door and he had refused to let her in. Um, he, they have history for when she drunk before and he refused to let her in and she banged on the door tried to get let in and he wouldn't let her 
So she went back home and she just felt um, overwhelmed with lots of emotions and also just felt like she couldn't stand it. I can't stand it. She, uh, she says to the therapist. And so now there were lots of things that we worked on in this session. Um, and to solve this problem, you need lots of different things. But I'm just going to show you um, a little clip where actually we do a little bit of work on being mindful um, and being mindful of our thoughts. So let me just. Uh, mind. I can't stand it. Yeah. But. It might possibly just to stand there and just breathe. Absolutely. No, no, I know. And that's one of the tasks that we've got in, in moments of very high emotion. It's like we become fused with our thinking and our thoughts become sort of facts almost. Yeah. So the question is, it's about learning to kind of try and pull ourselves apart in those moments. But that's difficult. It's a hard skill to learn. You know, a couple of things come to my mind is to, you might not be able to do anything about the first time it comes to my mind. I can't stand it. Yeah. But it might be possible just to stand there and just breathe and think, you know, I'm having the thought that I can't stand it. Mm. The thought that I can't stand it is in my mind. Mm. Yeah. Do you think you could try that? Just imagine for me now, let's just rehearse it a little bit in our mind, okay. yeah? Because you're quite good at getting pictures in your mind. Yeah, yeah, with, yeah you can, yeah. So if you could just, it, is it easier for you to do it with your eyes closed, your eyes open, to get a picture of yourself standing just in front of I your can door? I see myself. Right, okay. Well, I, I don't even have to close my eyes. Yeah. I can't, it's no. like it's burned. It's right my there. Brain. Now, if I'd been right there with you, if I'd happened to just sort of materialise yeah. right next to you, what would I have seen as you had just come in there? Come in the door. What would have come my face? Yeah, or in your body. I mean, were you kind of, you know, hunched over? Were you, I don't know. I'm just wondering what picture I would have seen. Yeah, probably tense and frowning. Yeah, okay. I think that probably. Okay, all right. So I want you to imagine yourself back there, yeah? Okay, and you're having that thought, I can't stand it, okay? And what I just want you to practice with me is just saying to yourself, I'm just noticing the thought, I can't stand it in my mind right now. I'm just noticing the thought. And as you say that, I want you to try and let go of the tension, because you've even got the tension right here, right now, can you? Just see if you can let go of the tension. I'm just noticing the thought that I can't stand it. I'm just noticing the thought that I can't stand it. Yeah. I'm just noticing the thought. I'm just noticing the thought that I can't stand it. Okay. Now what I want you to try, just, what happened right then? What thought went through your mind? I can't do it. Yeah. Okay. So we can do a couple, because I was actually thinking myself, as I was imagining myself in your situation, I was thinking a couple of that, I can't, you know, I'm just noticing thought, I can't stand it. Might just still me for a moment, but then I think what we needed to move to was something a bit more validating, Mm -hmm. a bit more like, this is really Mm -hmm. difficult. This is a very painful situation Mm -hmm. for me. 
this is a hard thing for me to have to deal with, something like that. Mm. Because it is very hard. And I think one of the things that you said was that, in a sense, the cutting kind of demonstrated to you how hard it was. So we kind of need to have some other way. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. So can you just imagine sort of like, I'm just noticing the thought I can't stand it, but then this is a very hard situation. That might be better. Uh Uh-huh. Try that then for me. Just try that. Just imagine yourself standing there saying, this is very hard for me. Okay. Just noticing the thought. I can't stand it. It's very hard. It's very hard. Yeah. It is hard. It is difficult, yeah. Now tell me, what did that feel like? That was a bit easier. That was a bit easier. Okay. So what we noticed here, a few things in this, this little tiny clip that are kind of quintessentially DBTs. First of all, you know, this is the point partway through the session, about a bit more than halfway through. And the client has got a notepad and she's writing because we're going to be, you know, I'm wanting the client to practice these things. We've generated a few things already and now we're on to another thing and I'm wanting the client to practice. And so she needs to be able to remember. Now, in these days of video therapy and and smartphones, I often will get my clients to video me rehearsing some of the things with them. And that's the other thing. And this is a behavioral treatment. So although what we're practicing here is a mindfulness skill, noticing the thought, I'm just noticing my thoughts. You know, can I just notice my thoughts rather than getting caught in them? We're going to do behavioral rehearsal because what we need to do is practice, practice, practice. And then also what we saw here is when you get your client to practice in front of you, you notice there's a problem. You notice that something about this isn't going to quite work. And so you then have to finesse it and try something else to see if you would get that to work. And so there's just a little snippet. You know, this, you know, solving this problem required lots of different things, but it just gives you a little bit of a flavor of the kind of the workmanlike sort of strategies and also the attention to behavioral rehearsal. And so one of the things we're really going to do in the treatment is to enhance skills. And we saw a little bit there of mindfulness. Um, but there are some other elements that we're going to do too. Um, but I'll just say a little bit more about the skills class. It's, it's two and a half hours each week. It has two class leaders, um, the leader and the co-leader. The leader is doing most of the teaching. The co-leader is watching for the process and seeing what's happening and trying to really help validate and see dialectical positions in order to keep the class going well and on track. It is run like a class, you know. We have PowerPoints and we have uh, whiteboards. um, And, of course, we run them all on Zoom now, and they seem to work just as well on Zoom or other other platforms. I should say other online platforms are available, I guess. Um, The target hierarchy differs in a skills class. So in a skills class, we only would tackle anything that was therapy destroying, you know, like if someone was, you know, shouting and screaming or something of that kind, which very rarely happens. Um, mostly what we're focusing on is teaching new skills. Um, and you would only, we rarely, we manage therapy interfering behavior rather than treat it so that, you know, lots of things happen in skills class. People might you know, kind of play on their phone or they might kind of fall asleep or they might not be very engaged. Those things, we wouldn't, we'd manage them, but the co-leader might do a little intervention, but we would really not get distracted from the main purpose of teaching skills. And we would teach to the manual. Um, Now, it's a modular skills program. 
And so these are the things that we can draw on um, to really help our clients. So we've got mindfulness, which we've talked a little bit about. We've also got their interpersonal effectiveness in the bottom left there. There's a whole series of skills that we teach about how to identify your wants and needs in interpersonal situations, how to ask for what you want and what you need, or to say no to things that you don't want or don't need, how to improve the quality of your relationships um, as you're asking for your needs, and how to re retain your self-respect. So a whole suite of interpersonal skills there to really try and help our clients learn to develop those. Then we also have a whole set of skills um, that are focused around distress tolerance. So the recognition that sometimes there are some situations that you can't change, you can't problem solve, is that actually you, you simply have to get through without making the situation worse. And um, there are sort of two elements to that. There's a sort of set which are perhaps very familiar to many folk from a mental health background um, or people who aren't from a mental health ground, but, but um, skills that are about crisis survival. So, you know, distraction skills, self-soothing skills, things just to help you get through the moment, um, things that you can do while you can't, when you can't solve the problem at the moment. Um, and then there are also a whole set uh, in, in the distress tolerance called radical acceptance skills, which have strong connection to mindfulness, which is radically accepting the situation that we're in. And you can only radically accept the present and things that have happened in the past. You can't radically accept the future. But to radically accept how things are at the moment, to let go of the struggle of wishing that things were different than they are. Um, and so these the skills in distress tolerance are a real excellent complement to those in mindfulness. And they represent the sort of the acceptance end of the dialectic, if you like. And then we have interpersonal effectiveness, which has also um, got emotion regulation, which um, are on the change side, which really focus on how to help clients to change things. And I just wanted to say a little bit more about emotion regulation, because the emotion regulation skills, given um, the formulation that we talked about, about what the problem is, that the primary issue is one of emotion dysregulation. It's really important that in the skill set, we're really focusing on how to regulate emotion. And um, in order to regulate emotion effectively, it's helpful to have good distress tolerance skills and mindfulness skills. You need something at the heart of it, which really helps you regulate your emotion. Um, so one of the central elements in the DBT emotion regulation skills set is first of all, helping our clients to understand um, the emotion families, that there are um, a set of what are often called basic emotions, um, which all humans experience. Wherever you go in the world, people experience these emotions. Now, emotion theorists disagree a little bit about which precisely are the basic emotions. And some theorists disagree a bit about whether shame and guilt are separate ones or whether they're on a continuum and so on. And those are important uh, theoretical debates. Um, however, from the point of view of our clients, the first thing to say is that there are these emotion families and there's a lot of agreement about which ones they are. And so I've put um, the, the main ones here, anger, fear, sadness, shame, guilt, disgust, joy, envy, jealousy. Um, and what, the first step that we're wanting to do with our clients is, first of all, help them to learn these different emotions and to be able to label them. There's a lot of research that shows that simply being able to label an emotion accurately helps to regulate it. 
Um, and often our clients, because of the environment in which they've been raised, haven't really um, had the experience or the support to be able to discern the different emotions that they experience. And often they just feel like they're experiencing a glut of kind of, you know, kind of a ball of emotions that, you know, that they can't really distinguish. And I remember one client saying to me, she said, what do you mean emotion? She said, I feel crap or not crap. What else is there? Um, and in order to kind of really help our clients move, we have to begin to tease out these complex emotional experiences into the distinctive emotion families. Now, each one of these emotions, emotion families, has a unique signature. So um, facial and body expressions, you know, so facial and body expressions for anger are different to facial and body expressions of sadness or joy. Yeah. So these different expressions are unique for each of these different emotion families. Um, and some of these are very powerful. So, for example, disgust, um, the a sort of unique facial feature of disgust is what's called the dimpler flash. So here it is. Otherwise known as the Elvis Presley lip, lip move. Yeah. Um, now, the dimpler flash is an expression of disgust. And actually, one of the, the kind of a key emotion researcher, John Gottman, um, who was a marital researcher, did a lot of studies of, of, of couples who were in conflict. And what he discovered is that the number of dimpler flashes in the first marital therapy session was a predictor of how likely a couple were to stay together or not. You know, so you can imagine it. One member of the couple says, you know, I, I really realize that I have not done enough to help you um, in, in raising the children. Um, and the, so I really need to do more. And the other member of the couple goes, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an expression of disgust, has a strong association with um, the relationship breaking up. So we see this, of course, a lot, for example, in our clients who have eating disorder is that, you know, they, they look at the food and they have a disgust response. Yeah. And so um, really important to understand these because these are the elements that we're going to use to help us um, change um, our emotional experiencing. Um, each emotion family, each emotion has a, a, a unique action urge um, so that um, and, and this is one of the ways that you can help clients discern uh, what emotion they're experiencing at any given moment. So, for example, the urge for anger is to attack. Um, the action urge for sadness is to withdraw and then also to seek out that which has been lost. There are two action urges with sadness. With fear, the action urge is to run away. With shame, the guilt, the urge is to hide. For guilt, the action urge is to repair. With disgust, um, so we've got the dimple of flesh, but there's always a sort of half upper body turn. Uh, with joy, we want to approach and do more of the thing that's led to joy. With envy, now people often get envy and jealousy mixed up. Envy is when you desire something that someone else has, and more importantly, you think they don't deserve and you do. Yeah, and so... Envy leads you to destroy what the other person has um, when it's unhelpful envy. You can have benign envy, which leads you to, motivates you to search out and become like the person that you envy. But kind of toxic envy is where 
you want to destroy what the other person has because they don't deserve it because it should have been yours. And then jealousy is where you fear someone taking away what you have. So, you know, this is my boyfriend. Keep your hands off. Yeah. So that knowing these different action urges can help you to help your client to understand which emotions that they're experiencing. Also, different emotions have different temperatures. Some are hot emotions. Some are cold. Anger is hot. Um, fear can be either hot or cold, depending a little bit, is that if it's sort of apprehension, it's usually hot. But if it's very intense or terror, then it's cold. Um, different temperatures are relevant and different voice tones go with different emotions. So it's helpful for clients to understand these unique signatures, um, not only to help them identify their emotions, but also these are um, important ways in which you can then learn to manage your emotions. So, for example, we're all familiar um, with um, unwarranted fear. You know, if we are afraid of spiders or if we're afraid of um, going to parties, um, we know that the treatment for that is to expose ourselves, is to approach the thing that we're afraid of. So rather than going with the action urge, which is to run away, we have to turn ourselves around and approach. So um, this um, principle of going opposite to the action urge of an emotion is one of the things that can help us um, manage uh, unwarranted emotion. Is that if you go opposite, um, to the emotion. To begin with, of course, if you're afraid of spiders and you start approaching a spider, your fear will go up. But if you keep doing it, if you keep approaching, eventually your fear will go down. If you keep going to parties and actually engage at the party, it's crucial here that you actually have to engage with people at the party, focus on what's happening, check out, is anyone trying to kill me at the party? Um, then your fear will eventually go down. And the thing is, is that this is one of the unique things that DBT brings to the field is that it, it um, applies this same principle and it works with all other emotions. It's if you go opposite to the action urge, when the emotion is unwarranted, then the emotion will go down. Yeah. So, for example, what do I mean by unwarranted? Yeah. So let's say um, you hear a noise outside your, um, your door. Um, and you open the door and in walks a tiger growling at you, okay? Now, in this moment, you would have fear and it would be telling you to do something. Depending on how close the, the – um, it might tell you to stand really still and freeze, fear might do that. Or if you're far enough to leg it, it will tell you to run. And the thing is, in that situation – do what your emotion is telling you to do because the emotion is warranted by the current circumstances. However, if tomorrow, you know, the lion tame has been and taken away the lion, which, uh, which had escaped from the zoo and all of that sort of thing, no, like, you know, and now you hear something outside your door um, and now you don't want to go and open your door. Now, your fear is totally understandable completely because yesterday there was a lion or a tiger but today there isn't so today your fear whilst understandable is unwarranted and what you need to do is to approach and um, engage with the environment and so this is a really important distinction because often what I find therapists do is that they they forget that they kind of 
They major on the understandability of the emotion, which I definitely want them to do, but they forget to challenge the unwarranted nature of the emotion. And that's really what we have to do also dialectically. Both are true. Um, and if we're going to have the client have the experience of their emotions go down, we have to get them to go opposite in all of the different domains. So opposite in their facial and body expressions, in their action urges, also change their body temperature, change their voice tone. Um, you change their muscle tone. You know, if you want someone to um, regulate their anger, you know, we saw that in the video, you want them to let go of the tension in their body. But if they're very sad and their body is like this, you want them actually to tense up, and to kind of change their, their muscle tone. You really want everyone to go opposite um, in, uh, in every domain of the emotional signature. Now, if we were in a room, I would have you do an, a, an exercise to help you have the experience of this. And we can't do this, but I'm going to tell you what it is. And maybe after um, this talk is over, you might be willing to try it out with a willing member of your household. Yeah. So what I'd like you to do, if you're willing afterwards, is to um, set it up with your member of your household. So like, I just want to try something out with you. And what you have to do as the two of you is you have to greet each other as if you were long lost friends. Imagine you had been the best of friends when you were at school together and you've not seen each other for 10 years. And suddenly you're seeing each other. And I want you to greet each other as if you've just met each other after 10 years. This is your best friend. Okay. And you need to throw yourself in. When you've done that, you only need to do it for like a few seconds, yeah? I then want you to try to do exactly the same thing again, but without moving your eyebrows. Don't let your eyebrows move. Because, in fact, the eyebrow flash, this, is the universal signal of greeting associated with joy, yeah? And so I want you to try to try that out, and you'll have this experience if you if you – Try and greet without lifting your eyebrows. You will notice several things. Yeah. But one of the things you'll notice, I'm not going to give it away, but one of the things you'll notice is that your joy emotion will not be as high. You notice other things. Pay attention to your voice. Pay attention to your body. But that's one of the things that you'll notice. And you might think to yourself, well, like, okay, this is a bit interesting. All right. You're a bit of fun. Da, 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 da. But wh why would you ever want to need that? Well, I had a client who was trying to give up drugs. Whenever she saw her drug dealer, because for her, drugs were associated with joy. When she saw her drug dealer, she experienced joy. In order for her to stop using, we had to decrease the joy that she experienced on seeing him around. Now, we did everything to make sure she was less likely to see him, but the thing was, if she saw him, joy that led to other things, chatting, and before she knew it, she was buying drugs. So these are the elements of, of really understanding and acting opposite to emotions. And this is a really central part of DBT, helping our clients understand their emotions, recognize that they are understandable and it makes sense, and to help them go opposite when the emotion is unwarranted, to get the um, emotion down or the intensity of it down. But of course, dialectically, Emotions also are often telling you something, yeah? You know, my client who experienced joy when she saw her drug dealer, it was telling her that, you know, she had little joy in her life except 
in association with drugs. And so we can get her to act opposite, to get the joy down uh, when she sees her drug dealer. But unless we address the problem of trying to cultivate joy elsewhere in her life, we're not really going to get very far. So again, this is another element of dialectical is that we're going to work on regulating that element of the emotion or the intensity of that emotion that is unwarranted. And then on the other hand, we're also going to work on problem solving to kind of get the thing into the client's life that, 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 that the emotion was really driving for. Okay. So changing client skill use is really important. It in, impacts clinical outcomes. And this is just some data from several studies put together in a, a paper by Andrada, Neshu, Rizvi, and Linehan. And what it simply shows here is that, um, you know, people come into skills training with a degree of skills. We've got uh, both the red and the blue line. They've got some skills at the start, which is about halfway up um, the, the, the scale that was used here. The clients in red are the control condition. And over time, you know, there's a bit of skill increase. They're not getting DBT. They're not getting a skills-based treatment. Uh, there's a bit of skills increase, although it tends to return back to baseline by the time of the follow-up period because they are in a therapy as well, just not a skills-based one. But what we see in DBT is that they increase their skills, they keep, they increase their skills a lot more than in the other condition, as you would expect, and also that that maintains. But what's crucial to know is it's that increase in skills use above baseline, which mediates the outcome. So the outcomes in the treatment of decreased suicidality, decreased self-harm, are mediated by that increase in skills use. And so it's really important in DBT or indeed in any treatment, if you're teaching clients skills to make sure that they really acquire them and you strengthen them and you rehearse them to ensure that they can uh, really deliver, deliver what the client needs them to do. And I think that's just a really important point is that we can sometimes as mental health professionals assume that teaching a client a skill is all that we need to do, when in fact that is the absolute minimum. We really need to strengthen that skill in the client's repertoire and we need to help make, get it to work for them and then to make sure that it generalizes so that it works outside of the therapy environment. So we've been relentlessly talking about change. But remember that DBT is dialectical. And so in addition to all this pushing for change, we also have a strong emphasis on validation. Validation of the client as he or she is in the current moment, validation of their thoughts and their emotions and their actions. Now, validation um, is something that we see in all psychological treatments. Um, indeed, some psychological treatments like Rogerian therapy are kind of based on a validating stance. The kind of counselling core conditions are about acceptance of the client and validating the client. And so in one element, there's not a great deal that's new here. Um, uh, you would see this in other psychological treatments. There is a difference in emphasis here, though. So that the lower levels of validation, so sort of staying awake, in other words, being, I mean, of course, literally staying awake. I mean, I did once have a, a colleague who um, uh, did fall asleep in a therapy session and woke up and the client had put a post-it on their chest saying you should practice your own skills um, because he'd literally fallen asleep um, so but what it really refers to is actually being awake to what you see in the moment as we saw in the video clip that when the client practiced the skill I noticed something happen and being curious about that and being interested in that 
reflecting back what the client says, of course, important therapeutic skill, mind reading, you know, sort of anticipating, trying to figure out what the client might be thinking. There's a bit of a caution here with clients with um, uh, personality disorder, particularly borderline personality disorder, and also with young people, is that some people uh, with those particular difficulties can find mind reading very unsettling, and they don't like people to accurately read their minds. It can feel very unsettling. So that may not work so well for some client groups. So to be awake to that. And then validating the client in terms of their past. So, you know, it makes sense to me that you would feel um, uh, sad because you've lost a lot of people in your life. You know, anyone who had lost so many people would feel sad, um, you know. Um, so, um, so we validate in terms of the past. Things that have happened in the client's past as were make sense of their present moment. Also, we want to really focus, and this is where DBT um, has a slight difference in emphasis from some psychological treatments, not by any means all. Um, there's a strong emphasis on validating in terms of the present moment. You know, it makes sense to me that you would react that way. I think anyone react, I would react like that. And we saw a little bit of that in the, um, uh, in the video where I kind of said, you know, I was thinking to myself, actually, just noticing I can't stand. I'm not sure that would work for me. You know, so you're kind of saying, you know, this is the fact that you're finding this hard is, is a human thing. All humans find this sort of thing difficult. Yeah. And I think this is really important, you know, that, um, you know, often therapists, mental health professionals, we do a lot of validating in terms of the past. But what that can do is it can just end up with the client feeling pathologized. And also there's nothing they can do about their past. So even though that may well be true that their current reactions are strongly influenced by the past, like all of our reactions are, um, it's more helpful to focus on those elements of their response, which make total sense in the present, but like anyone would respond in that way, you know. So anyone would be sad if, uh, if you know, someone cancelled a meeting with them. Anyone would be um, ashamed of themselves if they did something that um, went against their values. And to really focus on validating in terms of the present, not just in terms of the past. In fact, a major on validating in terms of the present. And then also to be radically genuine. And so there's a strong element in DBT of treating your client just like another human being who's having the same struggles as other human beings have, and not to treat them like a client, to treat them like they can hear the truth and not to pull your punches and just to be direct, you know? Um, and I remember this, but sometimes you notice radical genuineness when it's not there. So I remember um, listening to a, a therapy tape of a therapist who, and the, the client had come in and was in a, quite a suicidal crisis. And um, the therapist had said, you know, what set this off? You know, something clearly has happened. And the client said, well, I came home from work and I found my husband in bed with my sister. Okay. And the therapist said, I wonder how that made you feel. Now, here's the thing. I don't want to be judgmental of this therapist because the therapist was actually panicking because she knew how important the client's marriage was to her. She was the client was already had already said she was suicidal, and the therapist was terrified of saying anything that would make the situation worse. 
So she went for what I would call a standard therapist holding pattern, just like, well, I'm wondering how that made you feel. Now, actually, of course, what happened was that this resulted in an intensification of the, of the client's emotional response and things became much worse. And so a radically genuine response here, and there'll be as many radically genuine responses as there are people listening to this, this presentation, but it's what you would say if your best friend or your sister, well, actually, that wouldn't work in this because you might be the one in bed with the husband anyway, but if your best friend told you that had happened to them, and I, I can pretty much guarantee you that none of you, even though some of you might be therapists, would say, I wonder how that made you feel. You would say something like, oh, my God, that's a disaster, or I've got no idea. I mean, this is just dreadful, or, you know, what a jerk, or, you know, you'd say anything, or kind of, you know, thank God you, this is your perfect opportunity to get rid of him. You've hated him for years. You know, you'd say something that would, would recognize your sort of common humanity in this situation. And there's a strong emphasis in this treatment on being radically genuine in that kind of way. Okay, we're almost up to our time, but I just wanted to kind of just say a couple of other things. In terms of being dialectical, um, you know, this is problem solving on the one hand and um, um, validation on the other, as we've got change and acceptance. It's also true for the style. So that um, on the one hand, a DBT therapist is warm and genuine and compassionate um, and will self-disclose about their own experiences, provided those issues are solved and it's in the interest of the client. And on the other hand, they will also be irreverent and a bit confrontational. If the, the client is heading, um, is sort of really stuck and is heading on a difficult direction and your normal warmth and validation isn't being affected, a DBC therapist will move to be irreverent and confrontational. I remember one client of mine was forever uh, threatening to drop out of therapy um, because um, she hated the way other people looked at her um, in skills class. And in fact, this was a problem in other areas of her life. And I, try, I, I understood why it was a problem for her. I knew all of that because of her history, but none of that was very helpful. And so one day I just said to her when she threatened to drop out, I said, it's okay, I've got a solution. We are working on getting you to live like a hermit. It's the only thing. You have to just totally be a recluse. It's the only solution. And of course, she looked at me and she paused, but then she was then able to work on some of the other solutions. Um, so just being a bit irreverent, a bit confrontational, that can certainly kind of shift the, the dynamic in the relationship and help you pivot background to be able to work on comprehensive solutions. So in sum... If you're going to work in a DBT way, you need to structure the treatment environment because you're going to have to deliver multiple modes of treatment. It's not as simple as changing your own practice in the therapy room. You actually need to um, develop a team, as it says there, to be able to deliver all the multiple modes of treatment. When you're doing the treatment, you need to target it. You need to be focused um, on the top targets and to work systematically through those targets. You want to comprehensively treat high-risk behaviours and not just assess them. That's one of the things that often I see in modern mental health services. There's a lot of risk assessment um, and writing up action plans, but there isn't a lot of actually treating the variables that lead up to a client's risky behaviours. You need to really focus on developing client skills. 
And this doesn't just involve teaching them, it involves strengthening, rehearsal, and really troubleshooting the things that get in the way of skills working for your clients. And in order to do all of that, we really have to promote engagement, in particular, focus on life worth living goals. What are our clients' life worth living goals and how can we help them reach them as best we can? Okay, so I think that's me. I think we're up to our Q&A. So I'm hoping that Neil's going to do something. He's going to appear, I think. Thank you very much, Professor Shields. That was an excellent presentation. Um, we've had loads of engagement and loads of questions in the chat as well. So I think I'll just get started and ask you the first, uh, first question. Are you okay? Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay, so the first one is from Stella. And she's saying, as anyone or as someone who works with patients with B BPD, how do you feel about the way public and pop culture depicts BBT? She feels it's quite stigmatized in popular culture and as a diagnosis for characters in movies or TV shows that are manipulative, evil, crazy antagonists, for example, in Fatal Attraction. It's considering that, I imagine patients might get scared or discouraged when they are diagnosed with BPD. Have you noticed that as a problem? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think, Sally, you're absolutely right. I think that um, personality disorder and borderline personality disorder is one of the most stigmatizing diagnoses that a person can ever receive. And I think, um, you know, the depiction in popular culture does not help. Um, and I think if anything, you know, um, we're all listening to this presentation as ambassadors to try and challenge those unhelpful stereotypes wherever we see them and to really help um, people that we know in the community to understand that this is about a problem of emotion dysregulation. Now, we can't necessarily persuade Hollywood producers to change how they depict these things, but we can certainly do what we can, the way we talk about people with these problems and the way we try to engage them. And the thing that I always say to clients who come in with this, who might be reluctant, you know, I always do tell them uh, we, we would do an assessment to check to see if they met criteria for the diagnosis. Um, but um, I would always say to them um, that you know, DBT has proven that if you engage in this treatment and it works for you, and if this treatment doesn't work, there are other treatments for this disorder, that, um, that you, you can, your symptoms will go away. We can remove these symptoms. And if those symptoms go away, if these behaviours aren't there, if the emotions aren't there, you won't have the diagnosis anymore. Yeah. So there's a way of getting rid of it. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things that we know about diagnoses is that if there are no treatments for them, they're often even more stigmatizing. So I think the more we are able to help people with these diagnoses, the better. And as I say, you know, if I, you know, if we meet, you know, it's, we have to challenge stigma wherever we find it. And it's very hard to do. You're so right. 100%. Yeah. Okay. So the next question here is from Charles. And it's in regard to acting, acting opposite to regulate unwarranted emotion. How might, how mm. might that link to Viktor Frankl's paradoxical intention, which is deliberately engaging in neurotic behavior in order to identify and overcome it? Mm. Well, that's a really technical question. And I'm not sure I know enough about Viktor Frankl's paradoxical intention to, to know. Um, what the connection would be. I mean, Viktor Frankl did, his, his work did really influence Marsha, but more around the development of radical acceptance, of really accepting um, the circumstances in which you are, you know, and she read a lot of, of concentration camp survivors accounts about how to survive the most appalling situations in terms of trying to understand radical acceptance. And so I, so I guess the, the, the kind of the, 
there is an element there of, of noticing what emotion you're experiencing in order to be able to accept what's happening in this moment and then in order to be able to go opposite. Um, but I think it really does embrace this idea of both um, acceptance and change. Um, however, you know, I, I will go away and look up Viktor Frankl's uh, paradoxical intention because I don't know precisely. And so I suspect I might not be answering your question, Charles. Um, and it's just one of those downsides of us being on a, um, we could have a bit more of a dialogue and I could clarify um, if, if we were together. But um, uh, very interesting. Thank you. No okay. So the next one's from Amy. And Amy asks, how does the team directly benefit the patient as opposed to, to just making the therapist feel more supported? Right. Good question, Amy. The, um, it's, well, it's both, really, in the sense that if the therapist is more supported and less um, tense, anxious, um, preoccupied, um, they're able to be more flexible. And that will mean that they will deliver a better therapy for the client. Um, there are other, so there's a sort of an indirect benefit through the therapist's mental well-being and uh, in that way. But the other thing that the team offers is the therapist would, is encouraged to take problems that they're having to the team each week to gather different perspectives. So for example, they might go to team and say, look, you know, I've been working with Susan and her self-harm for the last four weeks and we've tried lots of things and none of the things that I have tried have really been helpful. So I'd really like to hear different perspectives about what might be going on here. Can you suggest alternate things that I might try? And so um, you get that benefit too of like several, lots of different heads on the same problem. Um, so the, there's a sort of more direct benefit, I would say, there. And then also the other thing is, is that the client also gets the experience of being treated by a team in that they'll have their individual therapist, but they'll also have at least one other and sometimes two other therapists in skills class. So they have this sense of there being a team to treat them. Um, and so that means if things are a bit rocky with the individual therapist, they maybe can approach their skills trainer to check out and get some coaching on how to resolve that problem. So there is a more direct benefit. So both indirect and direct benefits, I would say. Great. Okay. So just following on from that, we've got a question from Dan and he's asked in the DBT consult team I'm in, at times there seems to be conflict between those who are more DBT minded and those who are more person centered and attachment focused. Do you think there could be any issues with clients being put into DBT skills groups while their one-to-one -one therapy remains much more attachment and person-centered focused? Mm, yeah, uh, good question, Dan. I mean, the thing is, is that um, there have been some studies that have shown that, um, you know, clients do better if they get the whole of DBT as it is, unadulterated, with everything as it's meant to be in a DBT way. Um, that is for clients who've got the most... Um, you know, challenging behavior. So it depends a little bit who you've got in your DBT program. On the other hand, what I would say, though, is that if you are saying this is a DBT program and the client's coming in for DBT, this is a really important problem to solve, is that if the clients are getting person-centered therapy um, and not DBT and the therapy fails, which might not be to do with that, but the therapy could fail anyway, the client is likely to say that that DBT didn't work when actually they didn't have DBT. And I actually see that quite a lot. People coming saying, I've had that DBT, it doesn't work. And actually when they inquire, they actually haven't had the treatment. So it's really important if you're on a DBT team, everyone has to sign up to deliver DBT when they're doing DBT. Now, that doesn't mean to say 
that a person-centered approach isn't helpful anywhere else, nor does it mean to say that the person-centered therapists on the team don't have something vital to bring to a dialectical contribution to understanding a client's problem. Yeah. That can be super helpful that people are coming at it from, you know, they have different ways of, of thinking about it. Um, but when you're in a DBT team, everyone on that team has to sign up to delivering DBT. So my suggestion would be that you, you know, set a little kind of away day for your team, even if it's only for a couple of hours, um, to really discuss this issue about who is committed to delivering DBT or not. Um, because if you're going to do it, then you need to do it kind of completely all the way. Um, and, and then deliver the treatment as it is for the period of time. And then if it's helpful or not helpful, you can then have an honest conversation with your client and maybe something else would be more helpful. Um, you know, so that would be my suggestion about how to go about that. Um, but you don't, but your, your person-centered colleagues have a lot to bring to the team. So it's not about getting rid of them. It's just that when they're on the team, they need to be doing DBT. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. Uh, the next one's from Dana. And Dan has asked, can a quiet, can a quiet B, BPD be hard to intercept or hard to diagnose by a classical CBT therapist? Can it be misdiagnosed with something else? There are a lot of similarities of diagnosis between CPTSD and borderline. And she's saying that she, she speaks as a client and she's not a therapist. Mm, um, mm. Because of her, her own difficulties, yeah. she started to read a lot of psychology and she finds a lot of descriptions quite vague, general, and not very specific. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that can be really a problem. And was the beginning of the question, did, did, was it quiet borderline? Was that what you said? A, a quiet, a quiet yeah. BPD, yeah. A quiet BPD, yes. Well, interestingly, what Marsha Linehan talked about was that um, she talked about stage one of DBT is dealing with the um, sort of what we might call out of control behaviours. But then stage two is what she called quiet desperation. And this was a stage of treatment, she, exactly as you're saying, that she, she felt that was people pay a lot of attention to getting control of those behaviours and then didn't really attend to the quiet desperation that a person then might be left in. So in DBT, there's a strong focus on making sure that you then address that. And indeed, there have been some adaptations of DBT for specifically um, helping clients who have a PTSD um, uh, as a problem, uh, both uh, alongside the DBT and in slightly different ways. But I think your question was also about, you know, the diagnosis. And I think is the thing is that DBT doesn't really believe in diagnosis as a thing. Um, it just, unfortunately, in order to get research grants and to study it, you, you that's how you do it, or you used to have to do it. Fortunately, things are now changing. What DBT really works with is the fact that people have had early life experiences, many of which have involved trauma, uh, that have resulted in patterns of behavior and ways of coping that aren't helping right now. And the treatment is designed to try and address those patterns of behavior and patterns of coping to try and help a person live a, a life that they would more want to lead. And that will include treating trauma. So I do think that, um, so, um, the difference between, say, BPD and complex PTSD, which is kind of another diagnostic term. I do think complex PTSD is perhaps a, um, a kinder term than borderline personality disorder uh, and potentially could be much less stigmatizing. 
Um, however, I think the challenge is that not everyone who has the problems for which DBT can help necessarily has trauma. And so it could potentially lose some folks. So I think these are the difficulties. But I, I totally agree with you. And Marsha Linehan herself, you know, she, she wanted to really address that quiet um, desperation. It's real desperation uh, for people with those difficulties. Yeah. 100%. Um, so Juliet now has asked, uh, has DBT been used for psychosis? And if so, does application differ from when it is used for BPD? Yeah, good question. Um, Juliet, I mean, I think um, we there isn't a, a randomised controlled trial which has compared DBT for psychosis with other sorts of treatments. And so at that level, we, we don't know. And in fact, many of the treatment trials um, excluded people who had a diagnosis of schizophrenia um, because, you know, the worry was particularly that it might be very destabilizing to do even the brief mindfulness practices that we do. However, over time, um, many clients who come into DBT trials may not meet diagnostic criteria for schizophrenia, but they may well have psychotic symptoms. And certainly in routine clinical practice, a lot of clients who come in uh, to treatment programs have psychotic symptoms. And so um, you can treat those symptoms in DBT, and I've done so myself. We simply list them out under the quality of life interfering list that, you know, is a diagnosis of psychosis. And we would list out, you know, whether it's auditory hallucinations or paranoid delusions or whatever they are. We track them on the diary card and we would behaviorally analyze them in the same way that we would any other behavior. And we'd be looking, and I think particularly with psychotic symptoms, you're often looking for things that happen before, sort of on the antecedent end. Often intense emotion um, is a controlling variable for those sort of um, experiences. And so we would work on applying skills in much the same way. Of course, often there are other medication interventions that can be helpful alongside and also other CBT interventions for psychotic symptoms as well. So we, we don't have a lot of data, um, but certainly if a client meets criteria for DBT, um, but also has some psychotic symptoms alongside, we would definitely treat those within the context of the, the treatment program. Yeah. Thanks. And the next one's from Lisa. Um, Lisa says, I can see that some of this way of working can be part of individual therapy. What is the difference between working individually with supervision and peer, peer group supervision and working with a team? Well, I think the thing is, is that um, if you are working with a client individually with supervision, I mean, that's important for any psychological treatment, um, is it's still not the same as a team focus, particularly with a dialect. You know, if you've only got two of you, yourself and your supervisor and the client, you can't really resolve dialectics effectively. Um, what you really want from the team is multiple different perspectives. Um, now, there are some circumstances in which it's really difficult to run a team. I know that people have, for example, in private practice, you know, perhaps one or two therapists together have put together a small DBT team and, and worked that way. And I think if that's the best that you can do, that might be the best that you can do. Um, and at the same time, I think it's important just to know that the evidence base has always been for a team of people delivering the treatment. And so we just have to be a bit cautious. So if you're doing it in a different way, the thing to do is to track the outcomes of your clients to be sure that they're getting good outcomes um, just as a check for that. Um, I think there's just a different spirit somehow working on a team. It's a different, it's a different kind of feeling working together as a team. 
Um, but, I mean, I, I actually meant to say this in response to someone else who asked the team question earlier, is that we don't know a great deal about the precise impact of the team on clinical outcomes. Or One of my PhD students actually has just been starting to do some research on that. So we'll see if we can try and answer that question, because it is an important question. You know, this is a complex treatment. We know that skills are relevant in outcomes, but we don't actually know for sure that teams are relevant in outcomes. And so we await further data on that point. Cool. Okay. The next one uh, is from Ronan. Uh, has DBT been used for adults with autism spectrum disorder? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, th there have been some initial sort of small studies looking at that, and there's been a lot of interest in it. Um, but again, it's just a new um, sort of area. And so to be able to say systematically that it definitely is helpful for that is, is, not, um, is not clear. I think also one of the other things to say is that um, in some areas, there's been, you know, the DBT is really targeted for people who have very um, strong emotions and difficulty controlling their behaviours and often are quite impulsive. Um, and one, another researcher in DBT called Tom Lynch has been much more interested in people who may well have a lot of intense emotion, but actually are not impulsive at all, are actually more planful, more organised and more... Um, uh, attentive to detail, we might say. Um, and he's characterized uh, people with those sorts of um, uh, presentations as being more over-controlled rather than as DBT as it currently is for people who he would say were perhaps more under-controlled. And so he's been doing a little bit of work looking at that and, and thinking about people who might be on the autistic spectrum um, to see if his slightly different set of skills, which are more about... Um, becoming uh, more open and less controlled. So not thinking so much about controlling emotion, but thinking much more about social connectedness um, might be more helpful. So again, I think we're just beginning early stages to really look at what's really helpful for, for people who have those sorts of difficulties. Yeah. Fantastic. So just before you, before you go, Michaela, um, for anybody listening to this that is interested in training, uh, training in, in this approach, um, where can they find information about that? Um, are there any mm. books or resources that you'd recommend as well yeah, sure. as a follow-on yeah. to this? Yeah, sure. So in terms of books, um, I mean, I always feel a bit uncomfortable about this, but um, if you're a beginner, um, the book that I wrote with Heidi Heard called Distinctive Features of DBT was designed just as that for a, as an introductory text. It's very brief and it gives you a, 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 a good introduction. Um, for those of you who are interested in what I was saying about emotions, I can strongly recommend this book by Christine Dunkley called Regulating Emotions the DBT Way. That gives you a lot of practical examples of how you can use the DBT um, emotion focus in whatever therapy you're doing. Um, so I think there are lots of there are some good books there on kind of sort of getting you sort of started. Um, if you've done introductory work on DBT before, then obviously the DBT skills manual. In terms of training, I think it depends a little bit um, how much training you want. There are lots of opportunities where you can um, do skills training workshops where you can learn how to do the skills. But then if you wanted to learn to be a DBT therapist, that would be a much bigger journey of kind of a more intensive uh, set of training and um, there are different companies you know obviously I have a connection to one so it would be inappropriate for me to recommend any particular company for, for training um, because there are other companies that offer training in this treatment um, yeah. no problem okay well Makila it's been an absolutely fantastic presentation the feedback we're getting in the chat is really really positive so well done um, 
hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. And Thank you very much. Yeah, and it was great to have you all here. Thank you for joining. Okay, bye-bye.